Matthew chapter 18, starting verse 1, Matthew writes, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man did not come to save, uh, sorry, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, as surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father, who is heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Well, again, if you're visiting us for the first time or it's been a while since you've been here, you know, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And um, it's really been a rich study, at least for me, because every week we come to the Word, uh, you know, and it's, it's kind of, in my heart, it's like, you know, what new thing does Jesus have to say? Or, you know, what have the disciples done that has prompted a response from Jesus that's, a, that's just a blessing and a benefit to us? And today, we're going to be looking at one of those passages. You know, it's in this portion of Matthew's gospel that Jesus tells us how to achieve greatness in his kingdom. Jesus uh, instructs us. He, he instructs us on this subject, uh, you know, that's been prompted by a question that the disciples have asked him in verse 1. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, Mark tells us that the disciples have been arguing over which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the word that Mark uses there in that passage, you know, to describe the argument is the word disputed. Mark says they had disputed among themselves. The word translated disputed uh, carries with it the idea of a very heated dis uh, discussion. You know, this dispute among the disciples, it wasn't a civil discussion. It wasn't a conversation where they're bouncing ideas uh, off each other. You know, they're going back and forth. You know, these guys are probably red-faced. 
and, you know, veins bulging out of their neck. Um, they were engaged in a very, very heated argument. And you just wonder how, you know, what that conversation sounded like. And, you know, pastors make jokes about it. You know, they say something like, you know, Peter said, of course I'm the greatest. You know, I walked on water. And the other guy said, yeah, for one step before you sank like a rock. Yeah, but, you know, I'm the only one that received revelation from the Father in regards to Jesus being the Son of God. Yeah, that's true. And, and you're the only one Jesus rebukes saying, get behind me, Satan. You know, whatever this conversation, you know, may have sounded like, whatever they, they said, the fact of the matter is that there's no way that anyone can be fighting with 11 other people, you know, and they're fighting with you. Everyone's arguing about who's going to be the greatest in heaven. There's no way that that conversation can be anything other than embarrassing. You know, these are grown men that are having this discussion, that are arguing over this. You know, and they're arguing over this. Mark tells us they're arguing over this. Who will be the greatest in heaven while they're walking down the road right behind Jesus? And you know what? I mean, get a grip, you guys. I mean, Jesus is right there in front of you, and you're arguing over which one of you is going to be the greatest in heaven? Really? It just shows you how out of touch the disciples are with what Jesus came into the world to do. So, since the disciples were unable to come to any unanimous conclusion regarding which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they come to Jesus and ask him for his opinion. You know, they ask him to put an end to the argument. And I think it's a little crazy uh, when you think about it because they're, they're asking Jesus to personally reveal which one of us is going to be the greatest, right? And if you actually look closely at verse 1, they don't, ask, they don't ask Jesus which one of us will be the greatest. They ask him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I mean, we've been arguing about this, and, uh, you know, we need you to resolve it for us. Tell us now. Tell us right now which one of us is currently the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Peter probably is thinking, good. You know, I'd rather have them hear it from Jesus than from me anyway. You know? But uh, each of the disciples, what's going on here is each of the disciples, they have some ideas regarding heaven, which is dominating their thinking. And we need to remember that they've been indoctrinated, you know, one-dimensionally, you know, from the Old Testament regarding heaven. And they believe that when the Messiah would come, you know, he would immediately set up his kingdom and usher in this golden age of prosperity and peace. So they were looking to Jesus to throw off the Roman rule you know, to overturn the corrupt religious system that was dominated by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They were looking for Jesus to establish his great kingdom of prosperity and blessing in the world right now. That's what they were looking for. And it would seem at this point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples, they get this sense, you know, that the tensions between the religious leaders and, and Jesus are so great that they believe things are going to come to a very 
swift conclusion. So they're doing what carnal people would do. You know, they're starting to think, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom very soon. So you know what? I need to secure the highest position in his kingdom before the other guys, or else I'm going to be left out in the cold. So they're jockeying for position in, in order to, uh, you know, secure the most prominent position in the kingdom. They want to secure it for themselves. And again, it just shows you how out of touch these guys are because Jesus has been declaring to them over and over again that in his first coming, he came to die on the cross for our sins. And after that, he would be buried. And on the third day, he would raise again. His first coming was to establish a spiritual kingdom. It will be at his second coming, you know, that he establishes his, his kingdom here on the earth. And that's known as a thousand-year reign of Christ. You can read about it, Revelation chapter 20. It's also known as the kingdom age, where Jesus will then usher in, you know, a physical kingdom, you know, of prosperity and great blessing for the world. And I think these are the kinds of things that are probably going through the minds of the disciples as they're vying for that top position. Now, as you look at them arguing, you realize, you know, this is really pretty petty. This is really pretty childish. It's completely embarrassing in terms of what they're trying to do, what they're up to, what they're scheming, right? But even with all of their faults, they, they all have something going for them that's very commendable. At the very least, they have the desire for greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Not every Christian has that desire, much less gives any, gives any thought to it, right? But the disciples do. They want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And I think one could argue that it's easier for God to straighten out a believer who has a misguided desire for greatness than to accomplish anything of value through a believer who has no desire to be great in the kingdom of heaven. No desire to achieve any kind of greatness for the kingdom of God. No desire and never really gives any thought to being used in any capacity for the expansion of the kingdom. Never asking the Lord to use them mightily in bringing great glory to God. You know what? My hope and prayer is that this passage will be a challenge to all of us. You know what? This last week, in, in, it's just challenged me. And I want it to continue to challenge me, to search my heart, to stir me. Do I have a desire for greatness in the kingdom of God this morning? That's the question I think this passage uh, puts before us. Without a desire for greatness in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, you know what? This study this morning is going to just be empty noise to you. You know, I'm going to lose you so fast it will make your head spin. Because this passage assumes that as believers, as a child of God, each of us has a desire for greatness. You can take a person that has a desire for greatness, you know, uh, in the kingdom of God, a person who is, is, is wanting to be used in any capacity, you know, in order to see God's 
kingdom expanded in order to see God glorified in the world. And that person, when they hear about Jesus teaching on how to be great in the kingdom, you know, that person's on the edge of their seat. You know, think about it for a minute. What Jesus does here in this portion of scripture, he doesn't rebuke his disciples for wanting to be great in the kingdom. You know, he's actually going to instruct them how to be great in his kingdom. Jesus is going to instruct us this morning on how to be great, even how to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, how valuable is that? I mean, to me, that's priceless. The Bible doesn't condemn a desire for greatness in God's people. What it condemns is a selfish desire for greatness. The Bible doesn't condemn ambition. I pray God fills this church with ambitious people who possess a desire to take steps of faith to see God exalted and glorified in the town of Truckee and in this world. May God make us a people who are ambitious for the things of God and for the kingdom of God. Ambition for God and his kingdom is commendable. You know, the Bible condemns selfish ambition. Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, Philippians 2, 3, saying, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. I don't think anyone excels in any area of life who doesn't bring with them a desire to be the best that they can be, a desire to achieve great things in that which they uh, are engaged in. You know, whether it's you want to be a doctor or an artist or an athlete, whatever the case, you know, without a, a desire to be the best you can possibly be, you're just going through the motions and it becomes completely meaningless. There's nothing wrong with a desire to achieve greatness in the spiritual realm, a desire for our lives to impact the world for eternity's sake and be a great force here on earth for the expansion of the kingdom. However, we must not desire it, you know, for selfish reasons, you know, so that people will look at me and think that, you know, gosh, he's just the greatest, isn't he? You know, uh, I, I can't desire it so people will, at the very least, look at me that, and think that I'm greater than the next guy, right? The truth is, each of us as Christians are to possess a desire for greatness in the kingdom of God. For all the baggage that's attached to the disciples' question here, and there is a lot of baggage, right? Uh, these guys are as misguided as anyone can be after being with Jesus for three and a half years. But for all the baggage that's attached to this question, it's still a great question. And Jesus knows it's a great question. And so he proceeds to answer it. And we're going to find out how greatness is, is achieved in the kingdom of heaven versus how greatness is achieved in the world. Up to this point, the disciples, they've been trying to achieve greatness in a worldly way. You want to notice in verse 2 what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't immediately answer their question with words. He's going to get to that. 
But what he does is he starts out to answer their question by responding to them with an action, right? And you, again, you need to put yourself in the disciples' shoes here. You know, they've just asked Jesus, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they're waiting breathlessly. I mean, they're waiting for Jesus to name one of them, you know, and they're just on pins and needles waiting for the answer. But Jesus doesn't uh, name any of them. You know, there's a young child nearby, and we read in verse 2, then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And the disciples must be thinking, what's he doing? I mean, this already isn't working out the way I played it out in my mind, you know. Uh, it's already tough enough, you know, for us to figure out who's the greatest just among us 12. And is now Jesus adding a 13th? I mean, How's that going to work out? And then Jesus, though, proceeds to teach the disciples three things that are required to achieve greatness in God's kingdom in verses 3 through 5. Jesus calls the child over and says to the disciples, verse 3, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So first and foremost... Jesus says that a person must enter the kingdom of heaven in order to be great in it. I mean, you can't be great, you know, in something that you have no part in, right? It's impossible to be great in the kingdom of heaven uh, if you're not a citizen of that kingdom. So in order to achieve greatness, the key word here is enter. In order to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must first enter the kingdom of heaven. You also want to notice in this verse the word converted. Entry into the kingdom of heaven requires a conversion, right? The word converted means a turning. What Jesus is saying is in order to come into the kingdom of heaven, there needs to be a willingness to turn from a life that is supremely uh, a life about uh, self-promotion and self-gratification and give yourself to a life that is supremely about God. Jesus also declares in this verse that the entry into the kingdom of heaven requires that we become as little children. Now, uh, he's talking about little children in general here. And we need to understand, a small child possesses a recognition that he or she is not, you know, smarter or wiser than their father. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here uh, in referencing the little children. Right? Little children have the recognition that dad is a lot smarter of them, a lot smarter and wiser than they are. You know, but then they grow up and think otherwise. You know, I think the most precious thing in the world is, uh, you know, when a little kid thinks that their dad is stronger and smarter uh, than anybody else in the world. They're just the strongest and smartest guy in the world. You know, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but kind of broke my heart when our kids discovered that I wasn't the smartest or the strongest, you know, than anyone else, you know. I actually really enjoyed being my kids' heroes, you know. But anyway, uh, what Jesus is speaking uh, of here is the submission that's required to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In regards to the little child, he possesses a complete dependence upon his father, he knows 
that his father is smarter and wiser than he is. So he's willing to be taught by his father those things that he doesn't know anything about. And that's the way it needs to be with us. In order to be saved, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we have to acknowledge that God is far smarter, far wiser than we are. Now, you may hear that and think to yourself, well, no kidding, Gare. You know, uh, that goes without saying. It's just a no-brainer. But the reality is, and the crazy thing is, is it's not a no-brainer in this world. You know what? There are people, and there are people without number that think they're smarter than God in regards to many uh, aspects of life. You know what? They think that they're wiser than God when it comes to almost any subject they can think of. They're not concerned with what God has to say about any particular subject because they're convinced in their own mind that they know more than God in every area of life. And Jesus is communicating to us in this passage that we must recognize that God the Father is smarter and wiser than we are regarding any and all topics. But no issue or topic is more important to recognize God as being smarter and wiser than we are than what's required to enter the kingdom of heaven, how to be saved. So to be a child in this way is to be submissive and teachable when God the Father declares to me, you know, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. You know, it's to be submissive and teachable when God the Father declares to me that I can't save myself or add to my salvation, you know, that I can't, you know, save myself from the judgment my sins deserve. You know, it's to be submissive and teachable when God the Father tells me that the only way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's to be submissive and teachable when God the Father declares to me that I need to be born again. And we cannot and will not gain entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from an act of submission to God. Now, being born again is no great mystery. It was Jesus that spoke of the need to be born again. We've all experienced this physical birth, and in order to be citizens of heaven, in order to become part of God's family, we need to be born a second time. We need a spiritual birth. That's what Jesus was talking about. And being born again occurs when we come to God and say, your assessment of me is right. I am a sinner, right? I've been less than perfect all my life. And I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son to take the penalty my sins deserve and to pay my debt there upon the cross. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I want to turn my, uh, you know, I want to turn from my sins and I want to give you my life. And I trust in you for the forgiveness of my sins. I want you to be, you know, the Lord and master of my life, just to take the rightful place uh, on the throne of my life. And when a person does that, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit comes into that person's life and a spiritual rebirth takes place. And the miracle of that moment is that they're born again and become a part of God's kingdom. That's where it all starts. And we need to accept the fact that God is smarter and wiser than we are, especially in regards to this issue of salvation. And we must submit to his assessment of us 
outside of Christ. Verse 4, therefore, Jesus says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So uh, the second thing we must notice is that Jesus says greatness in the kingdom of heaven is achieved through a life of humility. And what will that humility look like in our lives? Jesus tells us that this humility was demonstrated by this little child. In verse 3, Jesus is um, speaking of children in general. But here in verse 4, Jesus is speaking about this specific child that he called to come to him. How has, was humility demonstrated in the life of this spe specific child? Very simply, Jesus calls this little kid over to him and he came. Jesus didn't go over and grab the kid and pick him up and carry him over to the disciples, right? He just called that kid and that child promptly obeyed and came to Jesus. That's what humility looks like in the eyes of God, you know? It's simple obedience to whatever it is that God has called us to do. So the humility that leads to greatness in the kingdom of heaven is a humility that obeys God no matter what he asks me to do. No matter what he asks of me through his word. No matter what he asks of me uh, by his Holy Spirit relating to his specific uh, purpose in my life. Obedience is necessary in regards to his specific call upon each one of us as individuals, right? We're never to consider of ourselves, you know, as too important or too good to do anything he asks us to do. And we're to obey him no matter where that obedience lands us in life, right? We're to obey him no matter who does or doesn't notice me. We're to obey him in spite of what people may think about the call that he's placed upon my life, the things he's asked me to do. We're to obey him and serve him with a whole heart, even if no one thinks of us as great. And, you know, what we should be mostly concerned about is just what the Lord thinks of us. And we're to obey him if it means serving him in complete obscurity. Nobody ever sees what we're doing for the kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is achieved through a life of humility. Just simple obedience to God's plan for my life, whether that's demonstrated in the way I raise my kids or in my marriage or on the job site or the school I go to or the church I serve in or the place I serve the Lord outside of the church. It's just obedience to whatever the Lord has called me to do. And I... I think each of us need to ask ourselves, is that what I'm doing? Is that what's going on in my life? Is obedience to his word, obedience to the calling he's placed upon my life, a priority in my life? Is that a non-negotiable uh, issue in my life? Am I obeying God's calling and his purposes for my life? If not, I have no hope of being the greatest or even just great in the kingdom of heaven because that comes through obedience. In verse 5, Jesus says, whoever receives 
one little child like this in my name receives me. So point number three, Jesus declares that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is achieved by treating other Christians as you would treat Jesus. The 12 disciples here are trying to achieve greatness the way the world achieves it. And the way the world achieves uh, greatness is not to value people, right? Greatness in the world comes through ignoring anyone and everyone who can't help me achieve what I want. You know, if you can't help me get where I want to go, then I don't need you. That's the world's way, right? The only people that you give any time to or are willing to uh, allow close to you are those people that you're going to have to crawl over, climb over to achieve your goals of greatness. That's the way it works in the world, right? And in the body of Christ, Jesus places a safeguard here in order that we don't think that's the way to be great in his kingdom. The safeguard that Jesus places here so that we don't treat people like that and live like that. And that safeguard is to treat everyone the way that we would treat Jesus if he were the one we were interacting with at the moment. No matter what they look like, no matter how they dress, no matter what they're driving, no matter where they live, no matter how educated they are, no matter, no matter, no matter. We're to treat every single person the way we would treat Jesus. And the fact of the matter is the way we treat other Christians is exactly how we're treating Jesus because every Christian is a part of the body of Christ. You know, I think of Saul of Tarsus later to be known as Paul the Apostle prior to his conversion. He wreaked havoc like a wild animal on the early church, just a rabid wild animal, just tearing the church apart, dragging people off to prison, forcing them to blaspheme the Lord, uh, forcing them to renounce Christ or die. And he put many Christians to death, right? And he wasn't satisfied with doing that just in Jerusalem or Israel. I mean, he went to the religious leaders and asked them permission to hunt down Christians and do the same to those that were living in Damascus and other foreign cities, it says. And while he was on his way to Damascus, Jesus met Saul of Tarsus and knocked him off his horse. And as Saul was lying there on the ground, Jesus spoke to him in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Basically, what Jesus is saying to Saul was, what you're doing to my people, you're actually doing to me. You know, when we do good to Christians, we're doing good to Jesus. And the converse is also true. When we're treating other Christians poorly or impolitely, we're treating Jesus that way. And this isn't just something that pastors say, right? I didn't, you know, this isn't a, 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 an idea that I came up with so you guys would treat me better, right? This is what Jesus is saying from this passage here. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, verses 3 and 5 is, do you want to be great in my kingdom? You need to be born again. You need to be born into the kingdom. You need to live a life of humility and obedience, whatever that entails. 
And I want you to treat every single person, you know, the way you would treat me if I were the one standing right in front of you that you're engaged with, interacting with. You know, you just think about that alone. If we would simply treat others the way we would treat Jesus, if he was uh, the one we were dealing with or talking to, just think how that alone would transform any church. You know what? I don't think it matters how loving that church may be. It would transform that church into the, the most loving, the most caring church in the world. You wouldn't have anyone entering into the church that wasn't greeted. You wouldn't have anyone standing by themselves, you know, feeling, um, you know, alone, feeling awkward or left out. Everyone would feel welcome. And they would want to get planted in that church in order that they would grow in the Lord. And they would look, they would, they would search for opportunities to serve in that church. And the reality is, we can walk by people and hardly even notice them. You know, but if it was Jesus, you know, we wouldn't walk by him. We wouldn't walk by him. We'd stop, we'd talk to him. We would ask him how he's doing. We would find out if there's anything that we could do for him. And you know, I don't bring this up. You know, I don't say this uh, intending to guilt you with a, you know, gotcha kind of thing. That's not my point, right? It's just a realization I think that we all need. You know, Jesus is telling us what he wants for us. You know, and this is just how things should be. Greatness is found in the kingdom of heaven through this kind of interaction with people because Jesus and the Father are very, inter are very interested in how, you know, people are being treated. Now, as we continue in verse 6 through 14, Jesus lets the whole world, uh, you know, he, he lets the whole world concerning those who are Christians, he lets the whole world know that they have a heavenly Father that loves them very much and cares a great deal for their lives. In verse 6, we see the loving heart of our heavenly Father for his children. Jesus gives a warning to anyone who would undermine the faith or stumble or offend one of his little children. Now, Jesus, you know, is talking about Christian when he, when he refers to little children. God looks at Christians. He looks at us as his children. We're the kids' kings. I mean, that's exciting to me. So Jesus gives a warning to anyone who would undermine the faith of a Christian or lure them into sin. He says in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, back in these days, there were two types of millstones. There was one uh, millstone. It was a little millstone. A woman would carry it from one place to another. It wasn't super heavy. It was heavy enough to drown you, though, if it was tied around your neck and you fell into the water. But... Jesus doesn't use the Greek word here referring to that little millstone, right? Jesus uses the word referring to the gigantic millstone that was used by the village that could only be moved when you hitched a donkey to it, right? It weighed somewhere in the neighborhood of like 3,000 pounds, right? Can you imagine 
that being tied around your neck and being cast into the, to the sea. I mean, think about how terrifying that would be. I mean, the panic that would come over you as you're plummeting to the bottom of the sea with a millstone like that around your neck, completely unable to escape. I mean, just imagine that for a minute. And what Jesus is saying is the judgment that is awaiting those who stumble the faith of one of my children, it would be better for them to have one of those enormous millstones tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea. That would seem like an act of mercy compared to the certain judgment that's ahead of those who undermine the faith of one of God's children. You know, no father appreciates um, seeing the faith of their kids being undermined. No father likes to see his child be drawn into a life of sin. You know, no father wants that for his kids. And our Heavenly Father doesn't like it either when people stumble the faith of his kids. You know, you just think of all the examples in the world of people doing just exactly that. I think of the entertainment industry, you know, how they use the internet, movies, music, television and radio, you know, video games, uh, bookstores, to fill the world with all kinds of filth and garbage, you know, enticing people to sin, destroying marriages, destroying families, destroying individual lives. You know, I think about how Alcohol is glamorized on the television. You know, good-looking men and women at the beach drinking a beer. You know, uh, beautiful women, well-dressed men sipping, you know, some alcoholic drink in some, you know, expensive restaurant. You know, images that are intended to get you to purchase their product. But you know what they never show you? They never show you that person waking up not knowing where they're at. You know, they never show you them waking up sick, waking up in their own vomit. And they never show you the people that are getting arrest for drunk driving, you know, that have ruined their lives because they killed somebody while they're driving drunk. And I think of the porn industry. You know, porn in America makes more mon money annually than the NFL, the NBA, and the National Baseball League combined. You know what? And they do it with no thought for the lives that are being destroyed by what they're putting out. It's terrible. And I think of the abortion industry in America. You know, doctors and nurses killing babies so they can make a buck. Drug dealers and the kind of bondage that they lead people into. Ungodly parents that mock the faith of their children and hinder, you know, they make it hard for uh, their kids in their pursuit of God. You know, I think of anti-God attitudes of government that is making it harder for Christians to live out a life of, life of faith. You know, attempting to silence their voices more and more every day. And I think of the millions upon millions of Christians who have been martyred for their faith. And you know what? It's going on today. It's going on in Afghanistan. It's going on, you know, in many other countries around the world. And those people, there are brothers and sisters who are being brutally murdered, you know, for their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I think of our schools, not just colleges and high schools, but grade schools. You know how they purposely introduce doubt to the kids, 
you know, in regards to the biblical account of creation, you know, starting it in grade school, you know, casting doubt on what the Bible has to say about marriage and morality, what the Bible has to say about right and wrong, slick college professors, you know, openly attacking believers, saying that they're fools for believing in the God of the Bible, seeking to humiliate Christians in front of the class. You know, the world system today is seemingly organized in an all-out attack on Christians in order to put a stop to any public discussion of faith, right? But one day, every part of that system, everyone who endorses those things, every person making a buck who is involved in stumbling the faith of believers, everyone and anyone who had a hand in causing believers to question the truth of the gospel, one day, They'll all face the judgment of God and they'll wish they could have a millstone tied around their neck and cast into the sea because that will look like mercy compared to the judgment they'll be facing for their treatment of God's people. You know, and one thing, you know, I want to make clear, all the sins that I've just mentioned, you know what, they're all forgivable this side of heaven. There's only, uh, you know, one sin that's unforgivable in the universe and that's a rejection of Jesus Christ as your Savior. So if, you know, a person's here, if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm guilty of some of those things. I'm guilty of a lot of those things. You know, do I have any hope? Will I be facing, you know, judgment, wishing for a millstone? You know, you just have to understand that the blood of Christ shed upon the cross for you and me will cleanse, can cleanse a person of all sins they've ever committed in their life. There is hope. You know what? The precious blood of Christ has the power to cleanse every sin committed in human history. Yes, there is hope, right? The idea, though, that Jesus is trying to get across here in verse 6 is if a person is enticing or luring Christians into a life of sin, undermining the faith of believers, that person needs to do whatever it takes to get away from doing that. What Jesus is saying is that it's not going to end well for you if that's what you're doing. And Jesus goes on and gives a warning to the world in verse 7 through 9. Verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. In this verse, Jesus is saying that heaven is fully aware that offenses will come. You know, offenses have occurred throughout human history, and there are going to be offenses in this age also. The world is full of offenses. And Jesus is saying that God keeps track of every single one of them. He keeps track of every single person involved on every single level. And one day, he's going to hold those people accountable for those offenses. And he's going to judge them for it. In other words, no one is going to get away with anything in this world. Because God sees, God knows and he'll, he'll judge. Jesus continues, verse 8, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your hand causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. 
Jesus is talking to the unsaved world here when he says this. He's not speaking literally, though. We've got to say this every time you run across this passage. Jesus is not speaking literally, saying this is what you should do. But what he is saying, however, is that you should do whatever's necessary to avoid offending one of God's people, no matter what the cost is, no matter how great the cost is, it's better to cut off a hand or a foot. It's better to gouge out an eye than to draw, be part of drawing God's people away from him and enticing, him, enticing them to sin. Again, he's not speaking literally about plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand or a foot because a person can cut off a, a hand and use the other hand to point people to sin. You know, uh, you can cut off both your hands and both your feet. You could gouge out both your eyes, but you still have a mouth to, you know, entice people, tempt people to sin. What Jesus is saying is, as valuable as our hands and our feet and our eyes are to us, people need to take whatever personal loss that's necessary to keep them from standing before a holy God one day and being judged for drawing unsuspected people, especially God's people, drawing them away from him and luring them into a life of sin. For the movie executive, for the video game developer, for the drug dealer, for everyone that is uh, involved in peddling vice for a profit, it would be better for them to die penniless, penniless, right? and innocent of drawing people into sin than to die, you know, ridiculously wealthy and face God's wrath for stumbling others with their sin. And that's what Jesus is saying to the world here. He's saying, avoid undermining and stumbling others, especially Christians, and do it at all costs. Avoid it. And in verse 10, Jesus says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus is reminding the world that the treatment of God's children is reported to the Father by the angelic uh, realm, right? Nothing escapes God's attention. He sees it all. He knows it all, right? But on top of that, you know, everything is reported to him by the angels. In other words, Nothing, again, goes unseen and no one will get away with wrongdoing, especially when it's directed towards one of his kids. Verse 11, for the son of man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, as surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep and over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is the will of our Father who is in heaven that not, uh, that, even so, it is not the will of our Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So here in verses 11 through 14, Jesus says, even though that all of this other stuff is going on, and all this other stuff that's intended to undermine the faith of God's children and draw them into a life of sin. God loves his children so much. He doesn't just sit idly by 
and allow them to be drawn away from him. Instead, he goes out and actively seeks those who have strayed from him in order to bring them back into the fold. I mean, just think about how many Christians have had their faith in God undermined by someone. You know, maybe a relative or a college professor, a co-worker, a friend and neighbor, whatever the case may be. You know, who's, had their, who's been tempted uh, into a life of sin for some time, you know? Or their faith in God has been undermined for a time. Or they've been pulled away for God's family. You know, they've been lured away from the flock of God for some time. And, and you know, they're way, way out there. And you think to yourself, you know, there's no way they're ever coming back. You know what? Uh, they've strayed so far, they're lost forever. And they're in such bondage now, they'll never be able to get free. But then one day they show up, you know, on your doorstep and they knock on your door. And, and you know, they receive your invitation to go to church with you. And they end up back in fellowship with God's people and they start reading their Bible again. And they start walking with the Lord again. You know what? How does that happen? It happens because there's a heavenly father that rose up, sought them out, delivered them from the lies, broke the chains that bound them and brought them home. And Jesus tells us in verse 13, not only does that, uh, not only does the father do that, but he loves to do that, right? It brings great joy to the father and all of heaven to do that. You know, I wonder how many of us here today can look back over their lives and realize that they would not be walking with God today except for one simple reason. He didn't let us go. You know what? That's my story. You know, everything in the world was working to draw me away from God, and I was actually cooperating with it. You know? And maybe you know what I'm talking about. After falling away for some period of time, I, I just came to the realization that, you know what? There's no way God wants me back now. You know, there's no way, uh, you know, God wants me. You know, I'm just better off hiding someplace. Just forget about God. You know what? But God did bring us back because he's not willing to let us go. He loves you that much. He's not willing to let you go. Maybe you're here today or watching online wondering if, you know, you've crossed the line of no return, wondering if you can repent and return to God. And, and, and the answer is yes, you can, right? The fact of the matter is that you'd have no desire to come back to God if his Holy Spirit wasn't working on your heart, drawing you back. The truth is that God went out and found you and has been working patiently in your life, you know, to bring you back to the fold, back into the family, right, of God, the family of God. And if that's you this morning, or if you're watching online this morning, that's the way you feel, you know what? God's word to you this morning is come home. And if you'll respond, recommit your life to God, his word to you is welcome home, my son, or welcome home, my daughter. Think about all the things that God had to, you know, overrule, override, or overcome to see people born again into his family. He's not willing to let anyone go without a fight. 
His heart is to keep you. His heart is to keep his family close to him. In these last four verses, or last few verses, 11 through 14, we see the fourth and the fifth key to achieving greatness in the kingdom of heaven. The fourth, in verse 11, we need to join Jesus in the work of winning souls, seeing people saved. And then the fifth, verses 12 through 14, we need to join our heavenly Father in seeking to draw those who have strayed back into the fold, back into the family of God. It's in this portion of Scripture Jesus tells us how to achieve greatness in his kingdom. And you'd think, you know, you'd think it would be something that's so complicated, so difficult, that there's no chance that any of us could ever achieve it. You know? But that's not the way it is. It's actually really simple. We just have to have the desire. We just need the want to. First, we need to make sure we're in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We need to be born again. Secondly, we need to have humility and obey God, no matter how he chooses to spend our life. Thirdly, we need to treat other Christians, other people, the way we would treat uh, Jesus. Fourth, we need to join Jesus in winning souls. We need to be looking for and seizing opportunities to share the gospel, the message of the cross, the free gift of salvation. That is available to whoever wants it. And fifth, we need to join our Heavenly Father seeking those who have gone astray, seeking to bring them back into the fold, bring them back into the family of God. You know, if we do those five things, it's going to keep us pretty busy. It's going to keep us pretty busy. If we'll give ourselves to these five things, you know, I won't get in an argument with you. You won't get in an argument with me over which one of us is going to be greater in the kingdom of heaven. If we'll leave all that to God and we'll just concern ourselves with these five things, you know what? Our place in the kingdom will take care of itself. And you know what? Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe... You know, you've strayed from the Lord. Maybe you've been living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You know, Monday through Saturday, you're out with your buddies, you're drinking, you're swearing, you know, and then on Sunday you come to church and you put on the Christian face. And you realize it's not working for you. It's just, you're just miserable. Because you got too much of the church in you to, to fit comfortably in the world. You got too much of the world in you to, to fit comfortably in the church. And maybe you're at a place where you see a need to recommit your life to Christ, but you're not sure if you could ever come home. You know what? You're wondering if it's too late, if the Lord would receive you. Well, you should already know. You know what? Jesus is just a prayer away. doesn't matter how far you stray. Jesus is just one step back. You know what? I'd encourage you. Why not just pray from your heart even now? You know, just the sincerity of your heart. Just, just pray, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for walking away from you. Thank you for never giving up on me. Cleanse me afresh from all my sins, Lord. I want to recommit my life to you. Use my life 
for your glory. Lord, I receive your forgiveness now, and I believe, I trust you, that you've restored me. Keep me from ever straying again. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, maybe you're here. Maybe you're watching online and you've never given your heart to the Lord. And you need to know that God loves you. God is desperately in love with you. Jesus came to take your sins upon himself, to pay the penalty your sins deserve. And you can be forgiven of all your sins and come into a right relationship with God the Father. And you can become a child of the King today. All it takes is just a prayer, you know, just a prayer from your heart, just a prayer of sincerity, you know. And you too can pray right now and ask him into your heart. You know, you just tell him that, you know, you want him to be the Lord and master of your life. And, and you know, it doesn't, what, what's important, you put it in your own words, what's important is your heart, right? You tell him that you want to surrender your heart and life to him. Tell him that you believe that he died for you on the cross and on the third day he rose again. You know, ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit and to empower you to walk with him and to live the life that he's calling you to. Tell him that you believe he's heard your prayers and that you receive his forgiveness. You know, because if a person will pray that, you know, if if you'll pray, if, if you prayed something like that from your heart with all the sincerity of your heart, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, comes into your life, and you're born again. And if you've recommitted your heart to Christ, if you prayed that prayer, you know, or you gave your heart to the Lord for the first time, what's important is to read your Bibles. You know what? Read your Bible. Start in the gospel. Get to know everything Jesus said and did, you know, and everything he taught. You know, become, purpose to become a man or woman of the word. You know, if the Bible's the sword of the spirit, man, I want to be a Jedi knight. I don't want to just pull out a little butter knife and, you know, tink, tink, tink. <laughs> Boy, I'm in trouble. Purpose to be a man or woman of the world, uh, of the word. And then plug into a solid Bible teaching church where you can grow in your knowledge of the Lord. Live for Jesus. Seek to be humble. Seek to be obedient. Treat others the way you would treat Jesus if he was the one uh, in front of you. Seek to win souls. Share the gospel with others. Telling them of the love of God. Telling them of the things that he's done in your life and the free gift of salvation that's available. And seek to draw those people that you run across. You know, throughout your day, you just kind of stumble upon them that have strayed. Seek to draw them back into the fold and be amongst the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, I want to be challenged by your word. That's the life that I want. That's the man I want to be. I want to know you and I want to carry out great exploits like it says in Daniel 11. I want to know you and be used by you for, for the expansion of your kingdom. I want to live my life for eternity, Lord. Would you move on our hearts? Lord, would you set a fire in our hearts? Lord, that that would be 
a consuming thing in our lives, that we would be consumed by you with our eyes fixed on eternity so that we might hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.